like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. In this episode, I'll be beginning my look at Martian Time Slip. Martian Time Slip, in my opinion, is is one of a handful of, of books I'd put on the top of my list, if I were to make a top 10 list, of favorite Philip K. Dick novels. So I'm very, very excited to begin talking about, about this, this book. So what does this book have? Well, it has a really great story. It has a very compelling setting and social structure and, and world. There's, there's actually a fair amount of world building in this, this book. Um, and although very much like Dick's other novels at the time, he throws a lot on there. It comes together all in a very, very nice way. He's got some really great characters here, um, especially characters like like the, the villain of the novel. This novel is a villain, um, uh, Arnie Cott. Um, Jack Bolin is just a, a wonderful person who's just good, but but facing kind of a crisis in his life. And he, yeah, he makes some bad decisions, perhaps, but he's just fundamentally a good person. He, he's very much like characters we're going to meet a lot in the mid-1960s. Characters who, who do things that might be morally suspect, but at the end of the day are just, just basically good people. Like Dick's basic, empathic uh, character. Uh, but I think what really strikes me about this novel, and one reason I like it so much, is it's really such a big turning point in Dick's career on, on questions of, for instance, the way he deals with mental illness, the way he talks about the frontier, the way he talks about you know what like what the future is and how you know how there's really no escape from the world we've sort of built up right so what you have a lot of going on in the 1950s is yeah that like the world on earth is this kind of static 1950s kind of simulacrum but there's often a way out right of that stagnation you know it's often the frontier as i talked about at length in this podcast the frontier becomes that way out that starts to get inverted in Martian Time Slip, and even more so in a few later novels, but really in this novel, the frontier starts to become just an extension of that stagnation. It's also very reflective, I think, on American history and America's frontier history, especially with uh, by Dick creating a population of indigenous Martians on the planet for the humans to interact with. It allows them to make some very powerful and important um, commentary on on the American experience of frontier. Uh, I actually think there's some interesting parallels in other ways too about about how Mars compares to to the actual history of the American frontier. Uh, what else here? Oh, great stuff on education. It, it's not a theme that Dick explored as much as some others, but what he has to say about education, I just think is so, so compelling, especially the way it relates to themes of automation. And then how he deals with mental illness here. Certainly, there's a lot not to like from, I guess, from a clinical or diagnostic point of view. You know, the way he seems to confuse schizophrenia and autism, and he doesn't seem to really know what these mental illnesses are. At least, I mean, 
I don't know as much about how people in the 60s looked at these diseases. I mean, I had to pick up the psychological handbook from the 60s to know how much Dick's getting right. But he just, he kind of is, is pretty loose with his mental illness diagnosis and what they are. And certainly I think people who read this, who are interested in, in you know, who are, who are dealing with autism or they're on the autism spectrum, the way Dick talks about autism here as almost like a variant of childhood schizophrenia or a, you know, he has a different explanation for it here, but that's sort of what's thrown around. And these terms, these mental illnesses get tossed around. In fact, I think even calling autism a mental illness is probably something that would be suspect today. It'd probably be seen more as a disability, right? So it all, you know, but I still think the way he talks about mental illness here is very important. I'm going to get to that as we go on in the, in this podcast. And this series. So I'm looking at, I'm thinking about a series of about five episodes on Martian Time Slip. I could do probably a lot more, but just the way I divided up the chapters, I'm looking at about a five episode series, but we'll see how it goes as I start, as I start talking about these novels. But anyways, a really great one. I urge you to read this one along with me. So if you haven't read Martian Time Slip, maybe turn this off, go pick up a copy of it and, and read the first three chapters and then come back and, and we can talk about it. About it together but if you haven't read this book yet and you're a philip k dick fan really you you have to put this one on the top of of your list it's it's one of his greatest novels and it's, it's a great story and it's it's really emotionally powerful actually which is something we don't always get from philip dick stories uh, there's sweet moments often but but there's really tragic moments here too um so anyways uh let me let me just start talking about about this chapter by chapter and then we can we can come back and, and look at it in, in broader terms. Um, when we open up the novel in chapter one, we're right away given a couple themes, really on the first line, essentially. And that is this relationship between mental illness and, and drugs. And of course, our setting is, is Mars. The entire novel is set on Mars. There are characters from Earth. Um, and of course, all these humans are from Earth. And some of them were born on Earth and, and migrated to to mars most of the adults are in that situation so the colony on mars is fairly young yeah, it's but it's it, and it's growing right and it is pretty clear that this is to some degree the future of humanity more and more people are going to move we get some hints of conditions on near earth in various points of the story but this is a novel about mars it's not hard science fiction i i just for instance finished reading uh, the Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert A. Heinlein. In that novel, you have, of course, a really strong effort to try to imagine what a society would be on, on the moon based on on kind of the science of it. And, you know, it's it's I guess that's not really hard science fiction either, but it makes an effort to be consistent and, and you know, play with issues of like how people who go to the moon how you know how long can they stay before coming back before their body and muscles atrophy how marriage changes due to social relations on the moon you know what the economy on the moon would look like although you know and he takes a lot of effort to that i think dick never was good at that kind of thing and he doesn't certainly do it in in martian time slip so there's a lot of you kind of just gotta bear with but you know as it unfolds, I think it's a really, really great story. And the setting actually comes alive. And it's unfortunate that, you know, when we finally, as much as Dick talks about the frontier, when we finally get our first good look at Dick exploring what life would be like on, on, the, on Mars, 
you know, he talks about people living on these other planets on their novels, and, and sometimes you do so, we do visit these settings, but this is our first real look at life on another planet. And it just becomes so bleak and so brutal and so depressing in a lot of ways that it, it can be hard to, to stomach. But anyways, it's, it's, a, it's a book about the moon, and, and or not the moon, the, about Mars. Um, and right away we learn that the big problem, one of the big problems people face is is mental illness and and drug addiction. And I'll just read the first few lines of, of the book. From the depths of a phenobarbitual slumber, Sylvia Bolin heard something that called sharp. It broke the layers into which she had sunk, damaging her perfect state of non-self. Mom, her mom called her son called again from outdoors. Sitting up, he took she took a swallow of water from a glass by the bed. She put her bare feet on the floor and rose with difficulty. Time by the clock, 9.30. She found her robe, walked into the window. I must not take any more of that, she thought. Better to succumb to the schizophrenic process. Join the rest of the world. End quote. Now, the world here, I guess you don't know until a little bit later that it's, it's Mars. But, I mean, what we're told in this first chapter, in the first line, really, these first lines, is drug use is common on Mars as a way of coping with the realities and that much of the population is suffering from mental illness. In fact, as we go on into the novel, we learn that essentially Mars is a colony of mentally ill people. And that is a, it's a mental illness that might come out of this desire to emigrate. And we do see a character, in fact, Sylvia Boland's husband, uh, Jack Boland, is our main protagonist in the story, is someone who seems to have, have emigrated to Mars because of his, his facing of schizophrenia. Of course, this is going to be explored more in the clans of the Elfane Moon, uh, but with a very different way it, it's managed. But it's also the sense we get, we get the sense that people are driven to various mental illnesses by living on Mars and just the social life they face. And that social life is very much like suburban 1950s America, like you got the the nuclear family, the the two parents and three kids. You got the stay-at-home mothers. You got um, like the desirable union job as something to strive for. We got the the door-to-door salesman. All these cliches of the 1950s that we've seen again and again in Dick's novels are here, but they're alive and well on, on Mars, right? And and this drives people to insanity. And, and let me just come out and say it. In the 1960s, there was a growing anti-psychiatry movement, and there was a series of, of thinkers who started to question the institutions of psychotherapy, and from, for that you have Irving Goffman, who wrote a book on the asylums, and of course, Michel Foucault from France, who wrote his book, Madness and Civilization. I, I think the full book is called Madness, and Madness and Civilization is a condensed, reduced version of that. So. They're criticizing the institutions of mental health care. And you have other people. Oh, what's his name? Well, his name is Thomas Saz. And he wrote a book called The Myth of Mental Illness, where he actually starts to question mental illness as a really like a clinical problem. And he starts to see it more as a social problem. And this was kind of a fad in the 1960s. And you'll still feel people to talk this way that, you know, it's, it's not people that are sick. It's society that's sick, right? Or society projects its own anxieties onto individuals who don't conform and therefore they label them mentally ill, right? I just read an article about, about anti-authoritarian personality among young people and how this 
used to be directed in various ways by society. And the, the author assumes that Einstein, for instance, was an anti-authoritarian personality. But now this just gets deemed like a oppositional defiant disorder or ADHD, and these children are drugged. All right, so that you kind of have a suppression of social of diversity and different opinions and, you know, by by mental health professionals. And then it goes even farther that people he are the author of the article, I forgot his name, but he argues that people who go into psychiatry tend to be authoritarian people, either authoritarian personalities themselves or the people who are willing to accept authority. And therefore, when they run into an anti-authoritarian in their practice, they tend to see that as a problem that has to be solved, usually with, with medicine. Um, but in the 1960s, this was a kind of a common idea, and it's something I think Dick essentially agreed with. Or if he didn't, he wouldn't write so often of societies which have pervasive mental illness. And it's not just this novel. It's, it's in The Clans of the Elfane Moon. It's in The Simulacrum. And in fact, a lot of the novels he wrote in the mid-1960s play with this idea very strongly of, of mental illness as part of the fabric of society. Now, one reason this had developed, as I understand it, was, was like a changing attitude about trauma caused by war, right? There was this concept, I guess, in World War I of, of shell shock, right? But still, the common idea was that, you know, if you're strong-minded, if you're normal, you can handle the pressures of war, right? But what they found in the 1940s was so many people who went to World War II basically healthy they came back mentally ill in some way and, and traumatized and I, I you know we would now call this ptsd and when psychiatrists started to study it they found it was really the experience of war that caused the these traumas it wasn't just shell shock right it wasn't just the i mean the way it sounds like the bomb went off next to you and your brain was kind of rattled it wasn't just that kind of physical trauma it was actually emotional trauma caused by the need to kill people the risks to your lives, the, the constant pressure and anxiety and all that, right? Things we now call PTSD, I suppose. I'm not an expert on any of this stuff, really. But in any case, that led people to say, well, it, it didn't matter who you were. You know, if you experience certain social conditions, like war, you're going to come out of it messed up. And therefore, it's really mental illness is a product of our environment to a, to a degree, right? And Dick, I think, is, is on this train of thought. Um, I'm almost certain he read these kind of these books, The Myth of Mental Illness and things like that. He himself was a consumer of mental illness, of, of mental health care, I mean, uh, seeing psychiatrists. So he thinks about this a lot, especially in the mid-1960s. And this is a novel that really comes out and is, it is in many ways a novel about, about mental illness. So anyways, I, I've been spending all this time talking just about a couple lines. I, I need to... to jump ahead. So the family we see here is Sylvia Bolin, they have a son David, and then there's there's Jack Bolin. And they're kind of in this they're they're in Mars and it's kind of like the suburbs. They have a neighbor, the Steiners, and they're they're immigrants. In fact, you know, the Mars has seems to have a lot of ethnic enclaves. Some are more diverse than others. Like there's uh kibbutzes where where Zionists have have migrated to. There's there's kind of a Russian one which I think is mentioned, but we don't really see much of it. There, so you know, people move around and interact across them, but they're, um, they're there's kind of these ethnic neighborhoods. But in this case, the neighbors are these these East Germans called the Steiners, and the 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 head of that family is Norbert Steiner. They have one boy, Manfred Steiner, who doesn't live at live at home. He lives at 
a special clinic for for mentally ill children. In fact, Manfred has has autism. There's the wife, Mrs. Steiner, and then the four girls, the four Steiner girls. Now, with the exception of Norbert and Manfred, these aren't important characters, but they're kind of emotionally um, significant, and they, they interact with the Bolands as, as the novel goes on. We learn, uh, well, for instance, a Russian repairman comes. We learn early on that repairmen and the art of repairing things is very, val very much valuable on Mars because really you can't import things. Uh, or it's very expensive to import things, so things have to be fixed. And and Dick was really fascinated with the repairman figure. He seemed to see that as a form of resistance to consumer culture. I, I think, you know, that the fact that you remake something. Uh, he's going to do this again in other novels too, especially with Doctor Blood Money. This kind of praising of the repairman. And Jack Boland himself is a handyman repairman. Now, despite Jack Boland being a repairman, this Boland family is having this Russian repairman coming, arriving for repairs. Um, now, the Steiners, we learn, have, have lost a lot of their water and are losing their garden. And so they're presented right away as kind of not all that well together. We learn later on that it's because Mr. Steiner, Norbert Steiner, is, is suffering extreme mental pressures and, and depression. And he really can't work very effectively. He does work on the black market, though, but I think his income is, is rather spotty. And he's got this big family. Uh, including one kid who's completely uh, even unable to communicate with his parents because of such extreme autism. Uh, and, I, and the Steiners kind of need water, and the Bolins are really annoyed by this. Uh, Mr. Steiner is seen as a very weak settler, not having any tools or skills. Now, we're going to see that he does do some important functions in, in this society, but compared to Jack Bolin, who is a handyman, a repairman, and a very skilled and effective repairman, Mr. Steiner is presented as a as a weak and fragile character. We also learn here about the power of water, the the importance of water on on Mars, but also we're given early on in the story despite being presented with this depressed woman who has this choice, this option at the, in the morning like do I either give in to schizophrenia or do I take drugs that are basically going to destroy my day, right? Make me sleep all day. And she comes back to these pills um, fairly early in the story. But we're also given the dream of the frontier and what the frontier means. And I think here Dick, or I really want to believe that Dick here is confronting the past 10 years of his work since the mid-1950s, where he presented the frontier in much more optimistic terms. But it becomes bleak. But first he has to address that the frontier is still has hope. There's still hope here. He's not totally abandoning the frontier yet, even though he's very much more pessimistic about its its future. But even this is told in such depressing uh, language. <clears throat> Here's what Sylvia says um, about the frontier. Quote, feeling more and more guilty, she filled a glass with water in order to take her morning pill. If only Jack were home, home more, she said to herself. It's so empty around here. It's a form of barbarism, this pettiness we're reduced to. What's the point of all this bickering intention, this terrible concern over each drop of water that dominates our lives? There should be something more. We were promised so much in the beginning, end quote. And that, that's, you know, such, it so in beautifully encapsulates the, the, the betrayal of, of the frontier and, the, you know, the, the, the interstellar frontier. No, no Star Trek Final Frontier here. 
And actually, I think this something similar to this is said a couple times in, in the novel about this. We were promised so much more in the beginning. Yeah, the, like just a few paragraphs later, it's... Um, She's complaining more about her husband being gone and how she doesn't feel she's married. But she said, did I emigrate from Earth for this? Yeah, it's um, and right. So right away, we're told that the frontier has become shitty, essentially. So then we flip to see what Jack is doing, because uh, Sylvia certainly is not his ha not happy. He's gone and he's doing a couple things. Essentially, he's a repairman who works for. Uh, his em his employer is Mr. Yi, and he just gets sent around Mars fixing stuff, and he's really good at fixing stuff. He's a very, very valuable person. In fact, at later on, his his very contract is going to be something that's that's bought and sold because it's considered so valuable. And Mr. Yi at first is very coy about selling his contract because, you know, saying he's irreplaceable. And in many ways, it seems he is because it's so expensive to import anything from, from Earth. In fact, there's a couple of characters that really make their career off the fact that it's connect communication with earth is is quite limited uh, the other is norbert Steist, um, steiner as we'll see in a moment um, but jack bolin is also at least marginally through his family engaged in real estate speculation so he's talking to his he's talking to his father in new york city his father is is named leo and they have their regular small talk about, you know, how's life on Mars and everything. And we learn that Leo Bolin, who has a bit of money, is is interested in investing in, in buying land in a place called the Franklin D. Roosevelt Mountains. And so, you know, this is this is a part of Mars. Now, this isn't a real mountain range in Mars, as far as I know, but a lot of the places have gotten gotten names based on uh human places right and so, some places are literally like knew this knew that very much like in in the new world you'll have towns that are named after old world counterparts you know by immigrants and remember again mars is ethnically divided uh in these different in different communities so there's these mountains the fdr mountains that jack says why would you want to buy the fdr mountains there's a total wasteland it's it's a waste area no one can live there right and that's why they're cheap that's why no one buys it and so he's basically saying, don't commit yourself to buying that. Quote, because it's a known fact that any Mars real estate away from the part of the canal network that works, and remember that only about one-tenth of it works, comes close to being an outright fraud. End quote. So the canals, the, the Martian Canal thing is real in this, this novel. And if you don't know the Martian Canal idea, it's like, I guess if you look at Mars from a certain angle or certain parts of Mars, you see these lines, right? And so the theory was that there was a canal network there. And then, then there's two options, right? There's a naturally occurring canal network, or, I mean, I guess canals can't be naturally occurring. They're, they're by definition artificial. So that's what most people who make a big deal of this say, right? That that these were artificial. This is your evidence that there's Martians, or that there's evidence that maybe we're Martians, right? We migrated from Mars at some point when the planet went bad. Anyways, there was either existing civilization. In fact, there was here. The Bleakman, there is an indigenous population here who's, who are totally conquered and shoved off to reservations. Some are, quote unquote, civilized, or, or the word here is tame because they're, they're not considered even human. You know, the parallel with, with the fate of Native Americans in the New World is, is pretty obvious here, and I think very much by intention. But he's just saying, like, it's, it's too far, far off the canal. Don't invest there. No one is going to buy it. It's really bad effort. It's a waste of money. We also, in this conversation with Leo, get our first mention of time. We're told that 
maybe time flows differently on Mars than Earth. And he actually read a, a psychological journal talking about this. This seems to be a real something that people are aware of, that people on Mars tend to have, develop psychological problems. And one theory is that maybe time works a little bit differently there. And th this is actually going to be a major issue with the autism of Manfred Steiner, because the theory comes forth, and basically this is confirmed in the course of the novel, that Manfred Steiner is is or autism, at least his autism, comes out of being out of sync with time, basically being a, a type of time traveler, someone who can see the future or experience the future, precognition of, of a type, although it's not quite precognition as we've seen in, in other stories. So anyways, we learned that Leo's going to be visiting to engage in this real estate deal, but we don't, right, right now we're told that it's, it's basically a bad idea to invest in the FDR mountains. It's at this point that he gets this call from Yi, so he has to do do some job. Um, and here we get the commentary on recycling and on how important it is to repair stuff and recycle it, and why his his own profession is so needed on on Mars. And you know, Yi, we get the whole background of his employer Yi, who really isn't someone who like likes tinkering. He's not really likes being a repairman. But he really came here to, to make money and he became rich and successful because he, because he realized how important repairs would be on Mars. So he, he took advantage of it. So he's, he's kind of the Cantonese capitalist, uh, I guess, a, a cultural cliche of sorts in, in this time period. I, I mean, the 1960s when he was writing it. I suppose it still exists to some degree. And we kind of start to get a comparison between how the Bolins see Mars. Uh, now, Jack's basically content on Mars. Um, you know, he's got a good job or thing. He's not like his wife, his wife who's constantly frustrated and annoyed and burdened by the fact that she lives on this this planet. But nevertheless, she, he doesn't see the frontier the way his father sees it. And we're given this, this contrast between kind of the ideology of, of Mars and the way Mars is presented to people on Earth and then the, and then the reality we've already seen. Quote, they would get along well, his father and his boy, both shrewd and practical, and yet both haphazardly romantic, as witness his father's impulse to buy land somewhere in the FDR mountains. It was the last gasp of hope springing eternal in the old man. Here was land selling for next to nothing, with no takers. The authentic frontier, with the habitable parts of Mars, were patently not. Below him, Jack noted the Senator Taft Canal and aligned his flight with it. The canal would lead him to the McAuliffe Dairy Ranch with thousands of acres of withered grass. It's once prized herd of Jerseys, now bent into something resembling their ancestors by the unjust environment. This was habitable Mars. This almost fertile spider web of lines radiating and crisscrossing, but always barely adequate to support life, no more. The Senator Taft, directly below now, showed a sluggish and repellent green. It was water sluiced and filtered in its final stages, but here it showed the accretions of time, the underlying slime and sand, and the containments which made it anything but potable. God knew what alkalines the population absorbed and built into its bones by now. However, they were alive. The water was not yet killed them, yellow-brown and full of sediment as it was. While over to the west, the ranches, which were waiting for human science to rake bare and pass its miracle. So this is the contrast between kind of the dream of, of the frontier and the reality that, that, that emerges when people actually did live on, on Mars. We get a little background here of the ancient kind of Martian culture that emerged, the, the, the Society of the Bleakmen um, as well. Now Jack Boland thinks about uh, going to one of the main settlements in this part of Mars called Lewistown, which is the habitation of the Plumbers Union Colony. And 
the head of the plumbers union colony is a man is a very famous man probably the most richest and powerful man on on mars a man named arnie cox and he's the president of the water workers local you know the water workers plumbing being so important water so important that basically this union becomes the most powerful political and economic entity on 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 mars in fact it's compared to an early renaissance tyrant right this uh, kind of the Florence society. Um, we also learn here that Israel is actually expanding and, and a little bit more successful. New Israel, I mean. Um, but this is explained away by the fact that they're Zionists and kind of zealots. And, you know, to what degree are there zealots is something that's that's kind of explored later on. We never really go. I think, no, actually, we do go to New Israel. Just kind of in passing. But, you know, it's, it's not it's not the real main focus of the novel, but they're talked about. Um, and they seem to be actually starting to reclaim some of the desert land. Um, and they were able to export, they were produced enough to be able to export back to Earth. So they're, they're more successful than some of the other um, parts. But um, Lewistown is one of the major centers because of its control over the water. And then he goes to his, his job, which is at the public school. He has to like fix these robots. And so the last thing we learn in chapter one of Martian Time Slip is the importance of these teaching robots. And this is a really wonderful idea, um, you know, because there's we're given kind of access to two schools. We're given the public school where Jack Boland's kid goes and there they learn from teaching machines. And there's all sorts of teaching machines based on what the kids have to learn. So there's like the Sir Francis Drake, which teaches English history or, and quote the fundamentals of masculine civil civility. Or the Abraham Lincoln teaches U.S. history, the statecraft. There's also the Julius Caesar, the Winston Churchill. There's the Aristotle. You know, and there's basically robots that have these historical personas, I guess, and they then directly teach kids. And we're we're taught right away that this is better than teachers, right? And there's some logic to this, right? We we often think that well, with automation, right, teachers will be safe, right? And as someone who's done some teaching in the past and, and will be doing more in the future, I'm actually moving to, to China soon to take a stab at high school teaching. Something completely new for me. But, you know, we think teaching is not going to be automated. People still want a human teacher. But a teacher, even the best, can create like, you know, a couple methods of teaching in a class, right? It's hard to do. And, you know, there's limits to what you can do. If you've got 30 kids, it's hard to touch each individually and give them each the individual curriculum that they need to, to learn. But a robot could perhaps craft individual lessons for, for thousands of different kids dealing with their individual needs. And, and we're told that actually these robot teachers are better. But actually, if you want to distill the face-to-face -face teaching, you have to go to the other school, which is a school for the mentally ill kids, the kids who have developmental disabilities and, and other problems. And there they're going to get the one-on-one -on -one teacher. The normal kids go to the public school where they're taught by, by robots. And believe it or not, there's more in chapter one. It's only 10 pages or so, but there's so much packed into this, this first chapter. It's so good. It's so good, this novel. Trust me. It's, it's, it's great. Okay, so then chapter two, we, we meet Arnie Cott in a steam bath. And it's kind of a, a weird scene where he's surrounded by his, his kind of underlings. And so again, he's the, the head, the president of the water workers local the fourth planet branch. And it's not clear right away, but you know, you learn as the course of the novel goes on that he is really one of the most powerful people on, on the planet. And he's doing this steam bath and he's kind of surrounded by his entourage and he's, he's not very shy about this. It's, 
Anyways, that's the scene we have. And he's also thinking about things like land speculation. So he's not just interested in like fixing canals and, and pipes and, and flushing toils and things like that. He is, but we do get the sense that a steam bath is a bit gratuitous given that water is, is fairly rare. I mean, it's not Arrakis, Arrakis we're on here, but still water is important. Um, I mean, he's not taking a water, like a bath bath, but anyways. He's not just engaged in that stuff, though, in water stuff. He's he's also talking about, like, land speculation, right? And, and you know, hoping to get iron ore and things like that. So he's got broader interests, and he's got a lot of holdings and investments in Mars that he needs to protect. And that so his concerns go well beyond kind of the functioning of, of a water workers' union. He says, you know, I got to protect my mineral rights. I can't have some smoozer coming in from Earth and making those mountains into like, for instance, a national park for picnickers. I tell you what I heard. I know that a bunch of communist officials from Russia and Hungary, big boys, was over there a week ago, no doubt looking around. You think that's because that collective of theirs failed last year, they gave up? No, they got the brains, the bugs, and the bugs like that always come back. Those reds are aching to establish a successful colony on Mars. It's practically a wet dream of theirs back home. I wouldn't be surprised if we find out those Portuguese from California sold to communist. And pretty soon we'll be seeing the name change from the FDR mountains, which is right and proper to something like the Joe Stalin mountains, end quote. So we learned that he's, he's interested also in the FDR mountains. Yeah, in part he wants to keep the communists out, but he also has this interest in, in kind of the mineral wealth there. Um, so Jack is proven wrong right away, his idea that no one would be interested in it, because he sees it just as, you know, land is valuable because it's a place you can settle and a place you can live. But that's not the only reason this land can can be valuable. And it seems that Jack's actually pretty ignorant and, and naive, maybe naive is a better term, about land speculation. He looks at things in a very straightforward way. Arnie Cock is, is much more forward thinking. He's very much kind of a technocratic figure who who does see himself as as visionary of of the colony. Um, but Dick makes it known very early on that he's not in any way a good guy. He, he's very authoritarian with the people around him. But I think the easiest way that Dick shows him as an odious character is by showing him as as highly heavily racist towards the bleakmen the bleakmen being the indigenous people and i think this is the first mention we get of of the quote-unquote the indigenous population remnants or, or the bleakmen and arnie sees them just as getting in the way he uses the n-word commonly to describe them so the bleakmen beep n-word um, and you know he says we can't even pay these beep because their work is so inconsistent we go broke all right so they're not even useful to really be to be workers now he does have a, a quote-unquote tamed bleakman who serves him and we'll meet him a little bit later on so there, there there are some that he finds useful but the vast majority of the bleakmen are seen as just kind of useless wasted space on the surface of of mars and rna's commentary about them really establishes him as as the villain of of the tale he's not entirely unredeemable he doesn't have i mean he has some interesting characteristics he's not a mustache twirling villain really but he is established as as a bit of the bad guy compared to jack bolin and, and we'll see how and in, in yeah in this chapter later in this chapter will be the an important scene in which jack and arnie encounter a, a group of bleakmen we also learn through arnie cott's perspective that there's a lot of tensions with the u.n 
and with the kind of the development of, of that the UN goes. And one of the t- sources of tension is on policy towards the bleakmen. Arnie just basically sees them as they should be eradicated. They're useless, but the UN has all these policies on how you have to treat them and deal with them. And this, these are the things that get in, annoy him a little bit. Um, what else do we have here? Well, we, we have a discussion also of, of technology on Mars. Some Dick does have, has a little bit of fun here with the way technology works out. For instance, bikes are very valuable on Mars, in part because they can be fairly easily repaired, but also because of low gravity, you can kind of zip around on, on bikes and go up hills and things without too much trouble. So, you know, there are cars essentially, but a lot of people just zip around on bicycles because it doesn't take a lot of energy to move around on, on with the low gravity on, on Mars. I don't know, what's the, what is the gravity on Mars? So I just looked it up, 0.376 Gs. So, you know, less than half. Um, what else do we have here? Well, partially because of the high level of, of mental illness on Mars, there's a lot of talk about eugenics and, and kind of birth control. Um, this is a big issue. And there's a lot of, seems apparently a lot of forced abortions. And this is part of the conflict between the UN and Mars, the question of what to do with, with, um, with children. Now, it's interesting, like in a frontier setting, you think they'd be promoting children, but it's not entirely clear that that's happening here. Quote, reading in the newspaper, he came across an article about a reception at the White House for a Mrs. Lintzer, who as an official of a birth control agency had performed 8,000 therapeutic abortions and had thereby set an example for American womanhood. Kind of a nurse, Arnie Cott decided. Oh, sorry, that, that's, that's uh, the abortions on Earth because the Earth's so overpopulated, right? But there's also going to be eugenics policies for Mars. That are also a major subplot of this novel. In fact, there's a bill before, like the UN Parliament or Congress at the time that this novel takes place, pr- suggesting that essentially all the kids at this camp for disabled, me- you know, mentally handicapped children be euthanized. The camp shut down and these children all killed. We got a lot of, I guess, you know, Nazi parallels here and kind of quasi-fascist. Um, approach now that never really comes to pass because you know it could though I mean that we're not told that that bill dies or anything it's it's it beca- it's part of the backdrop of, of the story that that Dick really wants to tell um, now Arnie Cott's point of view is that we need to get people to Mars so one concern of his is is promoting Mars and advertising Mars and this is something his wife or his ex-wife was very much involved involved with uh, so he's He's trying to get, you know, Earth overeducated. Like one of the problems on Earth is that there's no jobs for people. Even if you have, you know, a PhD or something, you're often unemployed. On Mars, people with only like a bachelor's degree can do really well. So it's, he's got a lot of kind of degree inflation here, which I think is um, rather fascinating that he's predicting that. taking Because I think to a certain degree it, it's happened when you have people with PhDs and masters working at Starbucks or whatever. Um, but there's, there's opportunity on Mars and Arnie Cott seems to really believe that there's upward mobility for him. Um, and he's actually one of these people who has moved up in life because he's moved to Mars. So he sees Mars as this, again, this frontier that can give people new lives and, and, you know, so it's good. It deals with overeducation, but his base, but his politics are that he, he wants to enforce essentially salutary neglect on on mars that 
the Martians should have complete self-rule and the UN shouldn't do much. should just let Martians do what they want. Uh, but that seems to be not the case all the time. It seems the UN is becoming more and more intrusive in how it deals with Martian issues. So we got some parallels here, I think, to the 1760s and the way Britain dealt with the United States. And now we're interested to Arnie Cott's ex-wife. His ex-wife is Mrs. Anna Esterhazy. And she has a child who's at the same school that Manfred Steiner's at, this, this school for mentally dis disabled kids. It, I don't think it's autism. It's some other uh, handicap that he has. And so she was once married to Arnie Cott. Now, the child's paternity it seems to be uh, Ill illegitimate, but Arnie Cott still sort of cares for for his ex-wife and they still have a good relationship with her. I mean, it's kind of, she's, it's what, it's something Dick has a, in a couple of his stories in this part of his career. And that's, that's what I, I like to call like an undead marriage almost, right? Or the marriage is over, but it's remnants remain, whether it's in the form of children or financial commitments or friendship. And it seems that these two people, Anne and Arnie Cott, do keep a fairly close relationship. Now, Arnie Cott also has a girlfriend. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think it's called a mistress, but she's not married anymore. So I don't know if that's the right term, but, you know, it's her name Doreen. And there's going to be a whole subplot involving Doreen and Jack Bolin. Clearly, adultery is, is going to be a major theme of this novel as well. I didn't mention that earlier on, but there's a lot here about family and adultery. So he his wife edits a journal called The Auditor Speaks Back, which is... Basically, it's a woman's journal for, for Martian ladies. Uh, but Arnie Cott thinks it's kind of silly. And at one point, he's actually trying to... He, he almost wants to vomit when he reads the prose in, in this newsletter. Um, but he still has a fairly good relationship with, with his wife. Although that relationship is not fully known by most Martians. He is a public public figure. Um, so he's, he's, he's going around and he finally lands in a field, in, in, a, in a landing field near the canals at a place called Samuel Gompers uh, Field, the Gompers Field. Uh, notice the connection, Samuel Gompers was the head of the AFL, and so it's not, you know, our, the importance of the union here, and you got this union culture. It's not explored maybe as much as I would have liked, but, you know, we got this, the symbolism of Samuel Gompers in, in this important landing site. He's, he's a major hero of these Martians. Through Arnie Cott's musings on life on Mars, we, we learn how important class consciousness is and the, the impact of upward mobility and kind of this, this suburban living that we have on Mars. And here I'll just read the passage. It's a paragraph it's on page 23 of the vintage version, if you have it. There's different versions of this novel. I, I have, for this one, I have the vintage one, which is the older uh, series. I think they're now published by Mariner and they're, they're much better made than newer ones. Better, better, better covers, too. Like, the cover of this book doesn't make any sense. I don't know what's going on here. Like a red squares and a hand. It's like a modern art. Anyways, let, let, this is page 23 of this version. 
Quote, a year ago when Ed Rockingham built a house for himself and Patricia and their three kids, he had acquired the unacquirable, his own canal. He had it built in open violation of the law for his private use, and it drew water from the great common network. Even Arnie had been outraged. There had been no prosecution, and today the canal, modestly named after Rockingham's eldest child, carried water 80 miles on the desert so that Pat Rockingham could live in a lovely spot and have a lawn, a swimming pool, and a fully irrigated flower garden. She grew especially large camilla bushes, and they're the only ones that had that had survived the transplanting to Mars. All during the day, sprinklers revolved and sprayed her bushes, keeping them from drying up and dying. You know, it's really, if, if you're able to create this, this suburban life, then you really achieved this pinnacle of, of kind of, of class status. It seemed to be what, what he's saying here. So now something very annoying happens to Arnie Cott as he's flying around, and that's he gets a distress call from about a party of bleak men who are apparently dying out in the in kind of the Martian desert somewhere. And, you know, this is annoying to Arnie Cott for a couple of reasons. One is he sees essentially the bleak men as a dying race that that shouldn't be saved. Jack Bolin, he picks up the same distress call, so he goes to also... Uh, help the bleak men. Now they're legally mandated to help these these people. So uh, the different responses of Arnie Cott and Jack Bolin to this distress call is very critical. Now this is the first meet. This is going to lead to the first meeting between Jack Bolin and Arnie Arnie Cott. Uh, one is very empathetic, trying to help the bleak men, and the other who just sees them as you know as nomadic people, useless, not exploitable economically in any way. I mean, his first mention of them is, is essentially that the bleak men can't even be paid minimum wage because their work is so inferior and so low quality. Um, and we again have Arnie Cott using the N-word here. So that this these two characters we've been introduced to in these first two chapters then meet uh, at this party of bleak men and they approach it in very, very different ways. In fact, there's a lot of tension when they first meet because Jack Bolin basically stands up to Arnie Cott and, and makes a moral statement about how to deal with these indigenous this indigenous population that really kind of throws water in the face of of arnie cott and his believed status and power so when we switch to um jack's point of view i mean he just encounters this this i mean arnie cott's just called the bald-headed man at this point because jack doesn't really know him by by name at this point yet and so we see these bleak men that they're filling, they fill their egg, they have these eggshells that they fill with the water that's been given to them by, by Jack. Um, so Jack had this big five gallon can of it and he does it in the bleak men. They, I, I can't really imagine. I, I think they must be larger eggshells. Maybe it's, um, you know, maybe they're more like ostrich eggs or something, but that's like their cup and they fill up these eggshells or maybe they're more like canteens made out of eggshells. Anyway, they fill this up, but we're, they're, we're reminded how poor and desperate these bleak men are. And they're also very humble. It sounds like that they probably would have died if Jack hadn't come to help them. But they're very humble about that. And they say like, oh, we can make it. But in Jack's point of view, these people are clearly on their last leg. Their quote, their possessions were not many, a quiver of poisoned arrows. That's an important point for later in the story. Uh, an animal hide for each of them. The two women had their pounding blocks, their sole possessions of value. Without the blocks, they were either not fit women. For on them, they prepared either meat or grain, whatever food their hunt might bring. And they also had a few cigarettes. Um, so Jack's then, I think he's talking with the pilot, who is a, basically telling Jack that my passenger's annoyed. I had to go and help this. But, you know, Jack says, well, 
don't doesn't feel good. I mean, you're helping these people, and and Arnie essentially says, you know, that's not saving, you know, saving people, right? And then he uses the N word again, and so there's this tension over the the approach, and if, essentially Arnie doesn't do much to to help the Bleakman, and it's really Jack who does most of the actual heavy lifting of actually helping them in this encounter and doing his kind of civic duty of, of aiding these people in distress. Now the bleak men then give him a water witch, which is pretty fascinating little thing. Um, they don't have much, first of all, but they give him, they give Jack this, this gift. And they say, this is a water witch. It'll bring you water, the source of life anytime you need. And they ask like, why didn't you use it then? Why didn't it help you? And the Bleakman just says, well, it did help. It brought you who brought water. But the Bleakman is like, like a little mummy. It's like a cre- some kind of creature. It's a mummy. Its face was oddly human, a wizard, wizard, wizened, suffering face, as if it had been killed while crying out. It's almost like a shrunken head kind of mummy thing. And that's the Water Witch. And we get a little bit about the religion that the Bleakman have. Um, Quote, formerly, this is one of the bleak men saying, formerly when one wanted water, one pissed on the water witch and she came to life. Now we do not do that, mister. We have learned from you, misters, not that to piss is wrong. So we spit on her instead and she hears that almost too, almost as well. It wakes her up and she opens and looks around and then she opens her mouth and calls the water to her. And as she did that, you, mister and that other mister, the big one who sat and did not come down, the mister with no hair on his head. And then Jack says, well, that mister is a powerful mister. <laughs> you know, and he's... At that point, he knows he's basically the owner of the town of Lewistown. Um, but it's a really important encounter here um, where Jack meets the Bleakman, treats them with empathy, treats them with care and and solidarity. Uh, and Arnie Cott was just there because he had to be there and just to kind of check the box that he did his duty. And it also builds up a tension between these two characters. Arnie, who thinks Jack insulted him and slighted him by... I guess by being the good guy in this this encounter. So that's that's uh, our opening of the story. I'm at 50 minutes, but I, I really do want to do chapter three. So this this episode is going to be a little bit longer than usual, but that I guess is the way it's going to have to be. Uh, chapter three. So this chapter is is our window into a third character. He's he's not around very long, but he's an important character, and that's Norbert Steiner. I'll try to be a little bit quicker here, but there's a lot in this chapter as well. So Norbert Steiner, his job is essentially he's a black market salesman. He sells mostly health food f- foods, but these are health foods that are imp- imported from Earth and are usually banned or not legal. Um, why is these, this stuff banned? Well, the UN goal is that Mars should be self-sufficient. And that's the policy. So they don't want people smuggling in things and importing things from Earth. And he's, he, you know, what they get a list of the stuff he kind of imports. It's like truffles, goose liver pate, caviar, kangaroo tail soup, Danish blue cheese. It seems like real luxuries, given that there's, you know, water is not even guaranteed on Mars. But, he, you know, and he sells this stuff to pretty broadly. In fact, we learn later on that Arnie Cott relies very heavily on Norbert Steiner for his supply of this these goodies. Um, he even imports like uh, kosher food for Jews. And it's a really interesting thing because the Jews here are presented, uh, the people in New Israel are presented as very much zealot Zionists who are really trying to create their holy land. 
I guess, although it's not fully described in the story as far as I remember, but maybe Israel on Earth failed, so Mars becomes the new um, the new Zion. And they're very successful, actually, you know, terraforming Earth more than any other population. But at the same time, they don't stick to to kosher food. And in a sense, this is what one historian I read, I think it's Bernard Balin, talks about as a marshland. And the, what marshland meant is that even though frontier societies come out of some motherland, in the frontier situation, their cultures diverge and change. Sometimes they get crazier. Sometimes they get they get a bit like weird. And he Balin talks about like religion in North America, as it veered away from traditional institutionalized religions in England. They got kind of nutty, and you had all these religious nuts appearing. Or he talks about how slavery. You know, vi- the violence of the economic system becomes worse in in the form of slavery or the violence against Indians. This this is all elements of a people going a little wild on the frontier almost. And he calls this America being a marchland. And if you want to look at that book, it's called The People in a British North America. It's it's a nice little introduction to his ideas on this. Now he's got a coworker, Otto Zitte. Um, I think he's he's of a German background as well. And he's like this door-to-door salesman. And he's got an interesting background. I think Otto failed as a repairman. So he, so he's kind of a failed settler on the moon. He, he tried to come in as a repairman. And he couldn't. So he's a bit off-put by that. Um, but he, 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 he's an effective salesman. And we learn that one reason he got in trouble as a repairman is he would often go door-to-door and repair stuff and then instead of taking payment from lonely housewives and we've already met one lonely housewife sylvia bolin it's been established and there's other examples taught hinted at this is going to be a major theme especially in the second half of the novel but he would just sleep with these women and not take payment and this got him in trouble with the union who of course they wanted the money right for for the job and they wanted of course they get their cut i guess of every job done um, by by Otto, but he wasn't taking cash. He was just taking sexual favors quite often from from these women, these lonely, lonely, desperate housewives. Um, but you know, so he lost his job as a repairman, and then he started working for Norbert Steiner. And Steiner at one point even says that he's not very he himself is not good at this importing and black market stuff. So Norbert Steiner is presented totally as a failure. That the only reason he's at all holding on to his career is because of the hard work of of Otto Otto Zitte. Um, anyways, the main story in chapter three is Norbert Steiner goes to visit his son, his son at Camp BG. And this is the camp for all the, the school for these disabled, mentally disabled kids, like his son, Manfred, who, who has autism. He sees Esther Hazy and Esther Hazy, and we learn that Esther Hazy also has a child at Camp BG. They talk about the UN plans that are on that are being worked out to essentially close down Camp BG. And the implication is that if they're slow to shut down the camp, that these children would then be euthanized or eliminated, the anomalous children. Quote, this is what Anne says to him about this. Quote, they're afraid. Well, they don't want to see what they call defective stock reappearing on the colonial planets. They want to keep the race pure. Can you understand that? I can, and yet, well, I can't agree. Probably because of my own child. No, I just can't agree. They're not worried about the anomalous children at home because they don't have the aspirations for them that they do for us. You have to understand the idealism and anxiety which they have about us. Do you remember how you felt 
before you emigrated here with your children back home they see the existence of anomalous children on mars as a sign of one of earth's major problems has been transported into the future because we are the future to them end quote it, this is so great this is so wonderful that earth is hierarchical overpopulated full of social problems but that doesn't matter as long as mars is pure because that's our future that's the utopian dream of the frontier we've already seen in plenty of evidence in the first 40 pages of the novel that this is an utter failure right that that is not working out that this is just the fantasies of bureaucrats and their solution to that is this utterly fascistic response to to murder children wholesale to to murder a whole camp of children to keep the frontier pure it's i mean it's it's so well done here it's really brilliantly managed i think i mean the whole i mean and i think one reason it works so well is because the whole experience of the american frontier is one of genocide and violence and we we see a couple examples of it already in this novel right we're not even 10 percent well we're not even 20 percent through this novel and we've already seen the genocide against the bleakman in full force and now genocide against disabled children So Anne eventually gives him a flute, which he, as a gift, just, you know, just kind of a, a little trinket to give him. Um, and he's going to give this to his son, Manfred. Now he meets Mrs. Milch, who's Manfred's teacher. Again, they still have the interpersonal teachers that you don't have on, on Earth. And they talk about the UN Bill too, and of course Mrs. Milch opposes it. You know, and she's very much cares for these children. Then they eventually discuss, he goes to discuss mental illness with a major character of the novel, a Dr. Glob. And he's basically the head of this camp, BG. And he'll be an important character, especially in the second half of the story. But what he does here is he introduces his theory about autism. And his, this is the idea. The idea here is that autism is a bit of time shift. And the reason autistic children can't communicate with non-autistic people is because they're really experiencing time at a different scale. Kind of a time rate shift is essentially how it's described. Now Steiner though is very depressed. He has no faith. Now Glob is very optimistic about this. Like if this is really what causes autism, then we can create a device that can slow down time for them. Then they, we can communicate with them. And Steiner though just doesn't have any hope. He's just heard this news that his son is probably going to be murdered by the government in a short time in the future. He doesn't see much hope of saving him. He can't even talk to his son. He's got these four girls, but this is his only son and he can't even talk to him. And it, it's just such a tragic, depressing, brutal passage we get. Um, the, I mean, the last thing he says to Dr. Glob in this passage is, is dreams. You'll never make contact with my boy. And then he walks away. Then instead of talking to his son, he essentially just goes to a bar, a nearby diner called the Red Fox. So it was kind of a bar. And he talks to uh, the bartender there. And the bartender talks about that his wife's brother on Earth was a was a fulcumillus. This is a... a physical disability dick uses a lot in these novels i think it's essentially you're you're born without arms and legs okay i just looked it up i'm not even sure on the pronunciation here focomelia focomalis i guess is the one who has said it quote a birth defect in which the upper portion of a limb is absent or poorly developed so that the hand or foot attaches to the body by a short flipper like stump 
All right, so that's that's that. So, um, but he has the opinion. This bartender has the he's for this UN bill. He lives right next to this camp, I guess. But he's for this bill. And then Steiner says, "Well, like my son's there." And then the guy's like, "Oh, sorry, Mister. I didn't know your son was there. I'm not really. I'm just chit chatting, you know." But you know, this just makes Steiner's day even worse. You know that that learning that the people on Mars don't want these children either. Oh, it's so bad. It's so tragic. It's so hard to read actually it's really really sad and he leaves this bar so he goes to this place to try to have a connection with his son he realizes he can he talks to the doctor who has all these dreams of you know maybe therapy 10 years down the line and he just doesn't buy it he talks he learns that his son's going to probably be killed by the government and there's not much he can do about it he finds out that his peers don't care and so he just decides to kill himself and he jumps into traffic and, and kills himself. And then Dick's not done. He then takes us to back to camp BG, Camp Ben Gurion, with Mrs. Milch, Manfred's teacher. And we see Manfred during the during his father's death. And I'll just read this for you. Yeah. Off to one side, Manfred stood heedless to the music, his head down, a thoughtful expression on his face. As the sirens wailed up loudly for a moment, Manfred lifted his head, noticing that Mrs. Milch gasped and breathed a prayer. The boy had heard. She thumped away at the Tchaikovsky music even more loudly than before, feeling exultation. She and the doctors had been right, for though sound had come about to contact with the boy. For through, oh, for through sound, they had come to have a contact with the boy. Now Manfred went slowly to the window to look out. All alone, he gazed down at the building in the streets below, searching for the origin of the noise which had aroused him, attracted his attention. Things were not so hopeless after all, Mrs. Milch said to herself. Wait until his father hears. It will show we must never give up. Talk of giving up. She played on loudly and happily. Oh my God, but that sound was the ambulance is coming to pick up his dead father. It, and that, that brings this one momentary contact with, you know, with, with his teacher. Oh, it's so sad. So sad. Um, but that, that, that gets us through chapter three, um, and through, I guess about a fifth of the novel. Again, what, it's such a wonderful novel. Maybe it's one of its best. I, I like Galactic Pot Healer a little bit more for different reasons, but it's just, oh, this one is so great. This is, it's, it's one of my favorites. I'm so excited to be talking about Martian Time Slip. So anyways, um, I, I'll end it with that and I'll be back next time where I'll talk about chapters three, four, five, and six. So it, please, uh, I encourage you to read along with me. So before my next episode comes up, read chapters four, five, and six of, of Martian Time Slip. That's your homework. Um, but I'll be back shortly with my thoughts on those chapters. Um, and thank you, as always, for listening. If you have your own thoughts about Martian Time Slip, please leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. See you next time. Thanks again for listening. You must search till you find the bluebird. You will find peace and contentment forever if you.